The reading today is Nehemiah 4, 4 until <laughs> 14. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly, en greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Abanite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we build the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ash Ashdodites heard that they were repairing the walls of Jerusalem, that, that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God to set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and that you reign victorious, that you are awesome and mighty. Lord, we pray that we learn from your scriptures today, that we leave here encouraged and full of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as you may have noticed, uh, we spoke, uh, that, that reading was from Nehemiah 4. So before we jump in, we need to have a little bit of context as to what is going on. Nehemiah is the main character here, and he was a butler to a pagan king in Babylon who God raises up to travel back to Israel to do his work, to restore what had been broken for God's people, to build a wall. In chapter 1, we see Nehemiah's passion, how he hears about his former city, Jerusalem, how it had been absolutely ruined and it was the laughing stock of the nations. It crushes his heart. And we see in that brokenness that God stirs him up. He gives him a holy discontent. Holy discontent, what does that mean? You know you have a holy discontent when you recognise that something is not right, that things are not the way that 
you see them that they should be. It could be to do with this city, with feeding the poor, helping the downtrodden who desperately need Jesus. And you are moved so deeply, your, your soul is stirred so violently that it keeps you up at night. God does this with Nehemiah. He breaks his heart for a city and a people. Chapter 2, we, we see more than a restless Nehemiah. We, we see him put a plan to this passion. And he takes his plan before the pagan king and God does only what God can do. He changes the heart of the king and the king doesn't just grant permission for Nehemiah to go back and do the work of the Lord, but he grants him a full arsenal of resources to help him rebuild this wall. Chapter 3 gives us a massive list of names. Now, we might not know exactly who these people were or all the work that they did, but God knows. No matter what work you do in obedience to God, it is significant. Even the guy who worked on the Dunnygate, his name is recorded for us. When we come to chapter 4, we see Nehemiah come to Jerusalem with this passion and this hope, and he starts the work of God, and then, as we have just read, he comes against great opposition. When it comes to Nehemiah's passion, we get one verse. When it comes to his prayer, we get six verses. When it comes to his plan, we get eight verses. And when it comes to his preparation, we get 11 verses. But when it comes to persecution, we get three straight chapters. The reality is, no matter how deep your passion how much you pray, how much you plan. We have to get our hearts to understand and prepare that opposition will come. What we're going to realise is that persecution and oppression are part of the Christian life and Christian ministry. It will come. Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as, something, as though something strange were happening to you. It shouldn't be foreign to us as we lead this Christian life that we have suffering but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Likewise, Paul told, tells a young pastor, Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Today, we're not called to build a physical wall around a city. We're called to proclaim the gospel, and it is the privilege and the responsibility of every Christian to do this work. And there is an enemy lurking around the corner who wants nothing more than to come in, and, and when you're, you, you have a passion to share the gospel, to come in and break that holy discontent, to strike fear into you so that you will shut up, that you will stop proclaiming the gospel and abandon the work of God. 
As an individual, what do we do? As a church, what do we do? That's why we're looking at Nehemiah 4, so that we can learn a couple of things here. So first of all, there is good news in this. Amen? Amen. The first thing you will almost always come against when your holy discontent drives you to go public is that people will be angry. Verse 1. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. He jeered at the Jews. Angry here means to literally burn with anger. His emotions were actually doing something physical to him. Here Sambalat was the governor of Samaria and he kind of set up these trade routes and he was making his own little economic empire. And we even see in verse 7 that he drops a lot of the differences that he has with the people in that region so they can all band together in their mutual hatred for God's people who are making progress. There's nothing new under the sun. We see this so clearly throughout church history and in the world today. People burning with anger, uniting over their common hatred for Jesus, his church, and the gospel. Those opposed to the work of God will often stir anger in others. My Facebook feed is absolutely full of this. Ministries that are genuinely in love with Jesus, who are proclaiming the gospel, who are seeing the fruit of that message. Things are often said about them. People promoting things like their organisation is homophobic, that it has archaic practices, that they follow a sky fairy, that they're a cult. So the first thing we have to, to learn here is that when we go and proclaim the gospel publicly, Not everybody is going to be happy with us. Second of all, people will mock. Verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burnt ones at that? Notice here that their enemy isn't actually saying anything that is untrue. They were a misplaced, weak people group. Their city was in ruins and it looked like a rubbish dump. What their enemy was doing was taking elements of the truth and twisting it. Here they were taking the nation's past failings and the the things that they had done and they were taunting them with it. Maybe you have experienced this in your personal life, being consistently reminded of who you were before you came to Christ, or even your past failings, people throwing it in your face so that you'll shut up about all this God stuff. Three, people will tell you it's all for nothing. We see this kind of like little character next to Sam Ballot, and he's, he's kind of trying to join in the, in the action. His name's Tobiah the Amorite, and he was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up, he will break down their stone wall. Nehemiah's enemies were not just going after their past. We also see them ridiculing about the work that they were presently engaged in and that it would be all for nothing. Mocking and jeering the people of God 
as people are going out to do the work of God has always happened. It's happened all throughout church history. It's happened on a personal level and it's happened on a corporate level. Jesus himself says, if I am your Lord and they have done this to me, they've treated me like this, how in the world do you think they're going to treat you? Do you think they're going to treat us any differently? No. What he's trying to do for his disciples is he's trying to really frame their expectations about what it is to follow him. In this fallen world, until I return, things are not going to be made straight. The crooked places are going to stay crooked in a lot of regards. Yes, there is hope. It is being redeemed. Yes, ultimately Jesus will come back, but we live in a fallen world and the people of God will be oppressed and persecuted. However, we can walk this Christian life and not expect this opposition. Maybe, maybe mentally we know it's there, maybe theologically we understand that it, it can happen, but day in, day out, we don't expect it. And because we don't expect it, when it comes, our world is, is shaken. If opposition comes, whether it's in the form of a person, a statement, or a circumstance, our world begins to crumble. Our faith begins to struggle, and what it really reveals is we don't actually expect any opposition when we're doing the work of God. Then slowly but surely, if we're not careful, we actually begin to, to, to question the character of God because this Christian life isn't working out the way we thought it would. We start to question God, whether he's good, whether he's faithful, whether he loves us. And this is so devastating because we're living in a climate, we're living in a time where the world is becoming more and more hostile against the church. So we have to expect opposition. How do God's people respond to the anger and the mockery and opposition? Well, first... Let's look at what Nehemiah doesn't do. He doesn't throw ridicule in their faces. He doesn't meet mocking and mock them back. He is silent before them. Everything in him probably wanted to say, hey guys, get those stones and throw it at the enemy. I'm sick of this rubbish. But that's not what the people of God do. We don't entertain mocking of others by mocking them back. Jesus perfectly lived this out for us. He was mocked and slandered while he was on the cross. While he was suffering, he uttered no threats, but he entrusted himself fully to the one who judges righteously. And we see Nehemiah do the same thing. He drops to his knees and he runs to God and he prays this prayer. And as we look at this prayer, you're going to wonder what the heck is going on here. Nehemiah prays, hear our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And, and that prayer seems so insanely harsh. But this is the essence of his prayer. 
God, this attack isn't on us. This attack is on you. We don't want you to overlook the injustice. We want you to step in because you, Lord, you, Lord, are the God of justice. So you step in and take care of us. You defend your honour and your name and these people's threats towards us. What do we do when persecution, when ridicule, when opposition come? We don't mock back. We don't become a keyboard warrior. But we also don't do nothing. In silence, we drop to our knees and you trust yourself and the situation completely to the Lord. Why? Because every Christian knows this. Jesus met the ultimate opposition on our behalf. He was crucified and despised so that his people would have a name that would never die. Our reputations, our names are secure. We can't really be despised, not in the long run, because our names have been written in heaven. Jesus was made of no reputation. He emptied himself of all his glory. He got all kinds of persecution. So now that when it happens to us, when we are despised, we can say, Lord, I look to you for my vindication, which is really what Nehemiah is doing. However, we can take it a step further. We, we have the spirit of God on this side of the cross. We can ask the Lord to help us forgive and pray and love those who persecute us. Tim Keller adds to this conversation, there's a sense in which Jesus is saying something like this. If you take a hit of your reputation, if you are persecuted, know what I have done for you. You can take it. I got the ultimate shame. I was rejected even by my father. I got the shame and the rejection that you deserve. So now that you know your name is written in heaven, you're a citizen of the ultimate city. You are surrounded by the ultimate walls of salvation. You cannot lose that because of the work that I have done for you. You can handle this because you are part of God's people. Prayer also quickly reminds us that we can't fight our battles, but that our God is victorious already. He's sovereign even over those who are opposed to his work. And you need to know, some of you need to know this this morning, that there is nothing in this world that is so powerful that it's become autonomous to God. He's allowed this opposition in your life for a reason. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. For Christians, God uses the opposition of this world for his own glory to form Christ in us. So when we know who we are in light of the gospel and what Jesus has done, we will work with confidence, not in our ability, but in knowing who he is and what he has done, no matter what is thrown at us. We see Nehemiah go on. He says, so we built the wall. 
The people simply chose, hey, I'm not going to believe what these guys are saying. I'm going to put my trust in the Lord and I'm going to continue with the work. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for a people had a mind to work. And that's amazing. Despite the threats, despite the taunting and the insults, it actually didn't fracture or um, fragment their community. But the opposition that they experienced actually drove them into more unity. They had a mind to work. Their hearts were in it. Has God given you a holy discontent, church? Has God burdened you with something that is so great, that is so ambitious that it keeps you up at night? Are you desperate to see the city of Fremantle changed and the gospel go out and those that the Lord brings in that you genuinely love? If that's you, and I certainly know that's the heart of this church, then let me encourage you this morning, don't stop. Just don't stop. We have to be obedient to God. We don't answer to the Sam Ballots and the Tobias of this world. We answer to God and only to God. When God calls something to be, the only response is obedience despite the persecution that may come. And take heart, what God calls, he will resource. And what God requires, he will provide. So keep trusting and keep persevering. We have a question though, what do we do? What do we do, sorry? When the, what does the enemy think of us? I got there eventually. When we don't respond to their threats, we keep our eyes on the Lord and we keep going. What, what does the enemy do? Well, verse seven and eight tells us. When Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very, very angry. And they all plotted to come together and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. Nehemiah's enemies knew that they were under the direction of a pagan king. King Xerxes was the one who sent them. They weren't building independently. They knew they couldn't just gather the groups, have this plan and come in and storm God's people. So they had to turn to something called aggressive threatening. And the restriction of Nehemiah's enemies in this passage has the same restriction as our enemy because he is a defeated foe whose head has been crushed under the king of kings. And like God's chosen people in this story, we are under a safeguard of that loving king for eternity. But we sometimes forget that all Satan has in this world is what he's allowed. But how the threats can seem so so real. So how did they respond to this aggressive threatening? Well, we see more prayer, but they got practical. Nehemiah says, and we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as protection against them day and night. 
In fear of physical attack, Nehemiah does two things together simultaneously. He prays and he defends. He does both. In one sense, he's, he's not leaning on a shovel and then praying to God to dig the hole. But in another sense, he's not digging a hole in his own strength without leaning on God, if that makes sense. He does both. He prays and he defends. He's both spiritually dependent on God, but practically engaged in the work and aware of the enemy. This is a great model for us to, to follow, to stand in the gap when persecution comes, pray and defend. I'd love to tell you at this point that these Israelites were, were kind of like some spiritual superheroes. No matter what attack came their way, they were not going to compromise. But unfortunately, honestly, thankfully, they're just like us. They're just like you and me. These Jews who were doing the work of God, who were, who were building, who had a passion, they got afraid, they got discouraged, they even get tired and they lose their strength. We see that it was said in Judah, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said they will not know until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Doubt sets in. Discouragement sets in. And they begin to say as a community, can we really finish this? Can we really follow what God has led us into? Truthfully, and I'm, I'm so thankful that this passage is here in Scripture, but it reminds me of me. It reminds me of my weakest moments of despair and temptation to doubt, not trust God, and ultimately just want to fold when this persecution and these heavy things come into my life. But that's where these people were at. They were discouraged by two things. They were discouraged by the work that they, they, see, they saw that they had to do, and they were discouraged by the consistent threatening and the opposition that they were having in their land and it got them scared and it seems that some were listening only to the enemy and telling those who were doing the work to stop verse 12 and at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and told us 10 times you must return to us stop these Jews were living in the land, but they were not involved in the building project. They were living near the enemy, and they were listening to what they had to say. We have to be aware that opposition can actually come from people who might be involved in church, but they're not involved in the Lord's work. They like comfort and concepts but when things start moving and fruit starts happening they throw disunity into the mix because the comfort of religion is left behind and they don't like the way that the leaders are doing things others just freak out because all these new people start rocking up at church and they don't kind of fit the whole churchianity model that you may have in your head don't be one of these people that conspire against 
the leadership of a church. Don't be one of those people. But don't get me wrong, sometimes conversations need to be had with the leaders of the church. But people that have a heart for the work, people that love God and his mission, will go to those who are leading it. They never want to cause disunity among the workers. So what did Nehemiah do? The enemy's getting louder, the people are freaking out, and the whole thing looks like it's just going to crumble. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and bows. This is incredible what Nehemiah does. He doesn't retreat. He stays put He diverts some of the builders of the wall to go and prepare for battle if need be. But it's a great picture of a persevering leader who does not fold under pressure. For Nehemiah, God's glory is far too precious to stop. His work is too precious to him. But he doesn't get the people to look at himself. He doesn't say, follow me, look at my leadership. He gets people to look at the Lord. Verse 14. And I looked and rose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who was great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. He's saying, I'm not oblivious to what they're saying. I'm not oblivious to what you're saying. I know what they've said, I know what they've threatened, and I know they are threatening to kill us, but don't be afraid of them. Why? Remember the Lord, who is great and mighty. Nehemiah points them to the only hope of salvation that any of us have when opposition comes. He gets them together, he gets them prepared, and he turns their hearts to the Lord. They got back to the wall and we see they just keep going. And I absolutely love this about this story. I love how he does this. He says, don't be afraid. Why remember the Lord? He puts the Lord as centre of their life who was great and awesome. Today, nothing has changed. We must continually point each other to the Lord in the face of anger mockery and opposition to the work of the Lord in proclaiming the gospel. But brothers and sisters, let's pray for those who persecute us, that they hear the gospel and that they turn to the Lord and be saved. How do we apply this today? If I have time, I have time. Has God burdened you for something? Have you opened your scriptures? Have you read the Bible and you've seen the heart of Jesus for people and that's just stirred something in you, that, that your heart has been so moved that you, you can't sleep at night and, and you have these dreams and these passions to see people hear the gospel, that, that the lost be saved? Has he impressed something so deep into you that it has brought you to your face in prayer? If he has, that is amazing. Praise God.
But rest assured, the mockers will come. They will seek to take a big bucket of spiritual cold water and dump it on that passion to get you to quit being obedient to God, to take your eyes off the Lord and to look at those who are pressing you, to shut you up so you no longer share the gospel. These people are out there. It's reality. It's what happens. But I would simply encourage you with this. The gospel is too great. The calling is too infinite and his purposes are too glorious for any of us to quit the work of the Lord. Brothers, sisters, you preach anyway, you serve anyway, and you keep your eyes on the Lord. Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning and oppression and opposition has taken you off the wall. Maybe some of you have been off the wall for a long time and your heart isn't as passionate for the work of the Lord and it's been like that for some time. You can actually point to a specific circumstance, a specific person, a specific event and say that was the circumstance that took me off the wall. If that is you this morning and you know that's you, Let me encourage you. The Lord is faithful and he absolutely loves you. He sent his son for you. Come back and join us. It's amazing what the people of God can do when we are united, when we're doing the work of the Lord and we have our eyes on the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that, Lord, we don't stumble through this world blindly, that we see because you have sent your son, Jesus. We are filled with your spirit. Lord, we know that we should be... um, we should be obedient in areas, and and Lord, sometimes uh, we're not. And so, Lord, we, we ask for forgiveness. And Lord, I I want to pray um, over this congregation, Lord, that you stir their hearts, that mission that you've called them to do, that the evangelizing, the, the proclaiming of the gospel, Lord, that they keep their eyes focused on you, no matter what comes their way. Lord, would you bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.